you would pray with me before we open God's word together. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for this place that you've given us that we can gather together as your people and open your word together. We pray that you would bless this time, that we would uh, hear clearly from your word, that we'd hear clearly from you, that we would see exactly what you're teaching us and and leading us to see, uh, as we often say, that uh, we need your spirit here to lead and guide us in all things. Without you, we are hopelessly lost. And so we pray that you would come and that you would apply this to our hearts and our minds today, that you would show us exactly what you would have us to take away from your word as we open it today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, I don't know how many of you, I know a lot uh, would say here, if I ask the question, how many of you are football fans? I know there's a lot of, of football fans. And, and the reason I know uh, partly is, is a lot of times on Sunday morning, following Saturday college football, a lot of people are kind of talking about football as we come into church sometimes. And, and I'll hear different things. Uh, last week, uh, I, I know a lot of Georgia fans were really frustrated because they lost a really close game. And so you hear things like if we had just gotten that one first down or that stop or we would have made that field goal, we would have won. Like we say things like that a lot or or, I'm sorry, if you're a Clemson fan, uh, today you'd be going, if we just would have made that one field goal, or we would have just made that. And we all do that, and we'll start to try to simplify it down. If we would have just done this one thing, we would have won the big game. Or, or we'll say the same thing with politics. We'll begin to talk about politics, and somebody will go, well, you know what we should do. And then they'll, then they'll lay something out they think that would fix a current problem or a current issue. And we all do that. We, we talk that way. We do that in relationships. We'll say, well, I'll tell you what you should do. You should do this. And we'll say, we'll try to put it into one little succinct statement. And so a lot of times what we do is we're giving advice or we're talking about those things or we're reflecting on something maybe as meaningless as a football game, but it, it occupies our attention. We'll say things like that in a short statement. We'll simplify it to be, if we would just do this, then it would be okay. Or, or it would have turned out differently. And, and the truth is, whether it's a football game or it's politics or it's relationships, oftentimes there's a whole lot more than just one little thing playing into it. Right? A football game is 150 plays. It doesn't just all happen on one play. Although there's big plays that make a big difference, there's a whole lot that goes into it. The same with politics, the same with our relationships, all those kind of things. That they're all very multidimensional. There's a lot of forces at work. There's a lot of things going into it. A whole lot of things that we might not even know. And so, but we try to simplify it into short, simple. Well, this is what would fix it. And I say that this morning, and I start that way just by thinking about, we're going to begin this week on a series on suffering. Trusting God in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering. And what often happens when we start to talk about things like this is we try to boil it down into one simplified statement. Right? Uh, within Christian circles, that's usually Romans 8.28. God has a purpose for all those that he's called. And so it's like there's this picture of, hey, that's, that's what we apply to everything. Oh, you're suffering. Well, trust God, it'll all work out kind of thing. And we say it that way sometimes. We talk in generalities and we try to condense it to one simple little statement. But the truth is, oftentimes it's not that simple. And it's not that easy. Um, yes, we are to trust God at all times and all things. And we're going to talk about that. But oftentimes there's so much that goes into what we see in suffering and struggles and problems that there's a lot to it. It's a multidimensional thing. And the Bible, thankfully, God's word has a lot to tell us on this subject. It tells us a lot. It's not just a simple one size fits all. Here's the answer and that's it. There's a lot that the Bible tells us about it. And it's very multidimensional in the way it answers it and the way it comes at it. 
And so we do a great disservice when we try to boil it down to one simple statement. This is what it is and everything and leave everything else out because God tells us a whole lot more than that. And so what we're going to do really for the next eight weeks is talk about this idea of trusting God in the midst of suffering. And the way it's kind of laid out is, is the next four weeks, really, we're going to talk about some big, pretty uh, foundational type things. And then the next four weeks after that, we're going to take those things and really apply to what is God teaching us? How is he teaching us in these difficult times? And where is that going? And what are the things that he brings to mind in the way he shows us and, and corrects us and moves us forward? And so it's, it's I just say from the beginning, as we open today, we're going to spend our time in the book of Job. This morning, if you want to turn there with me, it's page 267 in the Pew Bibles. We're going to look at a couple different passages throughout the book of Job. But I just want to say to you right at the beginning that we're hitting hitting on one part of what the Bible says this morning. We're kind of hitting on one side of the very multidimensional approach of what God's word says. And so this is not the whole thing. This is not just this is it and that's it. But we're looking at part of it. And I just want to say that from the beginning, that this is something I want you to stay with us as we walk through these next few weeks, that there's a lot that goes into it. And by the way, we're not going to cover everything the Bible says on suffering. We're not going to cover every bit of it in eight weeks. We couldn't do that when we try to understand an infinite God and the way he's working and different things. But I do want you to know it's, it's more than just one simple statement. There's a lot to it. And so, but where we're going to start today in the book of Job is where we often start when we start to think about suffering and what that looks like and how we trust God in that. Because just to be honest, the framework of the book of Job is suffering. That's what the book is about. That's the picture of what you get in the book of Job. That it's, that's the whole framework in which everything rests as you read through the book of Job. And so we're going to look at that this morning and begin to think about what it tells us in that book. I think one of the things that's tucked away in the book of Job, and it's one of the things that often comes up almost immediately whenever we talk about suffering, evil and suffering in the world, what's going in the world, all those things, especially from a Christian perspective. We just sang this morning, God is good all of the time. God is good. We we sang that over and over, all the time. Even when it seems that we don't know what's going on, God is still good. And so the Christian uh, faith, what Scripture tells us is that God is all-powerful, And that he is all knowing, that he is sovereign over all things, and that he's good. That he's always good and he always does what is good and right and perfect. And you put those together and you look around in the world and you go, why is it like this? In fact, oftentimes people will say that have rejected Christianity, have walked away from faith, will say, I don't believe in the God of the Bible because how can God be all good and all powerful and we have the mess that is our world? There's so much going on in our world, and so they will use that as a way. It's one of the classic arguments against God, against a belief in God. How can God be all good and all powerful, and we have all the mess that we have? And so I just say to you, if you sit here today and you are believing, you have put your faith in Jesus, you have put your faith in the way God has revealed himself through Scripture, it's still a valid question to ask. It's still a question to go, I don't know exactly how all this fits together. And so if you have that question or you've had that objection or you're struggling with that, I'm glad you're here. I think Scripture gives us answers. I think it helps us to understand that, to walk through that. But it's still a tough thing to deal with. It's a tough thing for all people to deal with, no matter what they believe or where they come from. We all have to deal with this issue. 
of, of the suffering in the world and what do we do with that and what does that look like? And so this morning we're going to look at the book of Job and I may be a bit ambitious in what we're doing today. We're actually going to kind of do overview of the whole book of Job. So we're going to do like 42 chapters. And so we got like, I don't know, nobody, there's no football games on this afternoon. So no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just get relaxed. No, I, I, we're going to do it in our kind of our normal time, just looking at big pictures of what the book of Job says on this subject. And that might be a little difficult, but I want us to try to just look at the big thing here because what the book of Job tells us, it tells us a lot on this issue, this kind of foundational, how can an all-good, all-knowing, sovereign God be and then there be the suffering that we see. And so we're going to just walk through the book of Job. And so I want us to begin in chapter 1. And we're going to story tell, kind of step through some of these things and then we'll stop and look at different snapshots in the book of Job as we go. But as the book opens, and you, if you know the story of Job, what we get is Job is actually a really good guy. He's seeking the Lord. He, he's seeking after God. He's not perfect by any means. In fact, at different times in the book, he'll say, I'm a sinner and I know I've made mistakes. And he will confess and he will say that. But he, uh, for all practical purposes, he's a good guy. He's seeking to follow God. I'm confident in saying that Job is a good and righteous man because God himself says so in the first chapter of Job. And so you start and Job's this pretty good guy and he's got a big family and he's very wealthy and God's blessed him in a lot of ways. It says he's got seven sons and three daughters. He had more money than anybody else where he lives. And so he's very wealthy and he's got this wonderful family and he's really seeking God. And you see in verse four of chapter one, just look there with me, just a snapshot of what Job's life is like. It says his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And then they would send an invite to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and he would offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. And Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And so thus Job did continually. Do you catch what it's saying? Right? Job's family gets together regularly for celebrations. And then Job comes alongside his family and he prays for him. And he goes before God and he intercedes. He wakes up early in the morning. And he says, I'm going to pray for my kids. And you see this pretty cool picture of who Job is. He loves his family well. He leads his family well. He prays for his children. He goes before God and intercedes on behalf of his kids. And so you see a pretty great picture of who Job is just in those two verses. And so you have this picture of Job seeking God in all these ways and what this looks like. And he's a really good guy. But then all of a sudden the book kind of takes a strange turn. You've got this picture of how good Job is. And then all of a sudden you have Satan coming before God seeking to accuse. And God actually says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan looks and he goes, yeah, Job, yeah, Job. Job's got everything. You've blessed him with everything. His life's great. Of course he loves you, right? That's, that's Satan's cynicism, his seeking to destroy all that is good. And that's what he says. And so God says, okay, I'm going to remove my protection from Job. You can take his stuff away from him. Just don't touch him. And what unfolds is pure evil. Satan goes and seeks to destroy all that is good. He seeks to destroy all that is God's and all that God cares about. And so he goes out and he takes from Job pretty much everything. Tells us that he destroys a good part of his fortune. He kills a lot of his servants. He, he stirs up wars and all this happens in one day. And then there's his family, his children gathering together in one house. And it comes and it blows the house down and they all die. 
And Job gets word of all these things happening in one day. His wealth, his reputation, his money, and his children all at once. And Job sees all this happen. In an incredible verse, he stands there and he says, The Lord blesses, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You go, And that's the picture you get at the beginning of Job. But then Satan comes and he says, "Yeah, yeah, 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 that's all good. But if you just let me touch his health, then he'd fall apart. And so God says, okay, you can't kill him, but you can take his health. And so then the next scene is he goes and he strikes Job with boils and covers him head to toe with all this mess. And so there is Job at the end of chapter two, mourning the loss of everything. It's just he and his wife left. He doesn't have his health anymore. He's lost all this stuff. And there it sits. And that's the that's kind of the, the background. That's the framework of the book of Job. It is a rough book when you read those first two chapters. But wow, that is tough. And so you see that right at the beginning. And then what unfolds from there on, chapter 3, all the way to chapter 42, is the way different people see what's going on. The first is chapter 3, Job laments. And so we see how Job is dealing with it. So we see how Job sees it in chapter 3. And then after that, we start with uh, different back and forth conversations with Job and his buddies. And so from 4 to 38, we see how Job's friends see it. And then you get to chapter 38 and then you see how God sees it. And so that's what we're going to do this morning is just real briefly look at how Job sees what's going on, how his friends see what's going on, and then how God sees it. And so let's just start with how Job sees what's going on. And so if you want to turn the page to chapter 3, you get this picture of what Job's dealing with And what he looks like. And so look at verse 11 there with me and what it says is Job. And you can understand where he's coming from when he says this. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet and I would have slept and I would have been at rest with the kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with the princes who had gold or filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not a stillborn child as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling and the weary are at rest. Do you hear what Job says? It would have been better if I was never born. Given what he has just been uh, faced with, what he's now dealing with, you can read that and you can go, yeah, I get it. Can you not? I mean, you think about the key stressors in our life, the key things that make us struggle, that press in on us, financial issues. He's just been wiped out a huge amount of his wealth. Uh, He's lost a lot of those that work for him. As you're going to see by what his friends say, he's lost a great deal of his reputation as they begin to attack him. And more than that, more than anything, loss of a loved one. And not only the loss of a loved one, but your child and not just a child, but all your children. You can understand why Job says it would have been better if I was never born. And so that's what he says. It would have been better if I would have just laid down and died the second I was born or I just was never born at all. And you can understand that in the midst of what he's dealing with. You can certainly understand that. Another way maybe to say that would be. Uh, no good can possibly come from this situation. Right? To, to say, I wish I was never born, that would be another way to say that. Right? There's nothing good that's come from my life. There's nothing that was good in my life that now hasn't been taken that can overcome what was bad. And so it would be better I was never born. No good can come from this. 
And so you see Job express that in chapter three, and you certainly can understand why. If we're honest and we went around the room, there may be times in your life where you felt that way. You said, I don't see how this could possibly work out for good. Maybe you've uttered those exact words. It would have been better if I never was born. And you can understand where he's coming from. We've all dealt with different hard things in our lives at different times. And so it's easy to look at that and at least sympathize with him. But I want us to think for just a second what's behind what Job is saying. What's behind that attitude that when we say that I would have never been born, it would have been better or no good could ever possibly come from this. It doesn't matter whether we're a believer and we're trusting in God or we're an unbeliever. There's a very similar sentiment under both. Let's start with the believer first for just a second. If we're a believer and we're saying we're putting our faith in God and we're trusting him and we say no good could come from this or it would have been better if I had never been born. What we're saying is that God could never have a reason for allowing this to happen and he could never redeem it. We're making a huge statement about who God is and what he can and cannot do. Oftentimes we don't think of it that way. But I'll be honest with you, is is I say it even that way. I don't know God that can redeem this. There have probably been times in your life that you're putting your faith in God and you're trusting and you still go, I don't know if God can redeem this. If you're really honest, there's probably times when you've been faced with something that that comes to mind. And I think that's all of us. There's times when we feel that way and you see that in Job and what he's saying. But I want you to really think about that for just a second. Is that something you can possibly know? No good could possibly come from that. Is anyone willing to say I have enough knowledge and I see all that there is that I can make that statement? It's a pretty serious statement to make. And I know in the midst of struggles, in the midst of hardships, in the midst of what's going on, it feels that way. And I'm not making light of that, but I want us to think about what's behind what we're saying when we do say that. What about the person who's not believing in God? They say something very similar. I started with that this morning. One of the great uh, attacks on Christianity is if God is all good and he's all powerful, why is there so much mess? And so people will say, because of what I see in front of me, I am going to surmise that God cannot exist because there's all this bad. What they're saying is that that I can't uh, think of a God big enough that he could use all the mess that's going on. They're saying the same thing that a believer is saying when we start to question, could God redeem this? And we're saying, no, there couldn't be a God big enough to redeem the mess there is. I see all of it. That's what we're saying when we say that. And so from both sides, we're saying a very similar thing, whether you're putting your faith in God or you're not trusting in God. And we get upset and we'll start to say those things. But I want you to think about that if you're struggling with faith or you know someone that is or you're walking through that together and you start to think that way. No, God couldn't exist because of this. All the evil there is, I know there can't be a good God who's all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good because of what I see. But I think the picture that is there when you come to the conclusion that God therefore cannot exist, that that's really a self-defeating problem that you just ran into. And I'll explain to you what I mean. C.S. Lewis, one of the great... Christian thinkers was an atheist for a long time in his life before he became a believer. And one of his great arguments against God was if there's an all powerful, all good God, 
who knows what he's doing, why is there so much evil and suffering? And he was so frustrated with that. And he said, but when I realized that if I removed God from that, I had no grounds on which to be upset. I want you to think about that for just a second. If we remove God from the equation completely, what we end up with is a naturalistic worldview. That is, that all that we see is all there is. There's nothing else to this life except we're just random chance got here over billions of years. There is no soul. There is no afterlife. There is no God. It's just this. And so that means you got here over billions of years from an incredibly violent process of survival of the fittest. People are wiped out and people uh, kill the weak. The strong eat the weak. That's the way we got here. That's natural. That's the way things exist. And so you really don't have a good reason to be upset at suffering in the world because it's completely and totally natural. And so what C.S. Lewis found is, is when I remove God from the equation and I'm angry at him, And I say, no, I'm going to reject the idea of God because of all that I see, that my uh, argument collapses on itself because I don't really have a good reason to be upset anymore. Because suffering is completely normal. It's how we got here if you remove God and there's no good reason for it. And so oftentimes we'll make a jump, which, by the way, is a great big faith assumption to say that there's no God. That takes a lot of faith to believe that. Whether people will tell you that's not the case, but it takes a lot of faith to believe that. And we'll go into that and we'll start to say that. And then the other side of that is when we say that no good could possibly come to this, so therefore there can't be a God. That's impossible to prove. It's impossible to prove that no good could come from whatever it is. Now, sometimes it looks very clearly there won't be any good from our estimation, but we're a finite creature trying to see all of it. And so it's a tough picture when you start to go down that road. But I wanted to one other issue with that when you think about it. When you start to go down that, is it possible that pain and suffering can lead to good things? Is it even possible? In your own life, can you look at a time or a place or a situation where you allowed pain and suffering to someone you love for their good? I mean, if we went around the room and we really thought about it, we'd all go, yeah, there's been different Silly example, but my son Asher is playing soccer in the cul-de-sac on the pavement and he's running full speed and he falls. And he skins up both knees and both hands and he comes in and he's screaming and he's crying and he's all bloody. What do you do? You take him over to the sink. You, you, you comfort him. I'm so sorry that happened. I'm so, and then I take his hand and I stick it under the water. And I rub it off and I wash it off and then I grab the hydrogen peroxide and I pour that on there and that hurts even worse. And I immediately do things that actually make his pain worse. Why? Because he's going to get better. Right? That's the way it's going to get better. It's going to help him to rebound and get better and to be stronger after it. It's not because I don't love him. But I, I purposely inflict some short measure of pain on him to help him get better. Or, or maybe, and I know this is the case, looking around. Well, Henry's here today. I know this is the case where you've taken your loved one to have a very painful surgery so that they would get better. There's probably a few weeks where you're cursing Mary Lou. Why did you take me to do this? (laughs) Right? We have surgeries and we do those things and we take loved ones. Uh, When Quinn was little, he had hernia, that's the word I'm looking for, hernia surgery. And you take him in there and he's one years old and he doesn't know what's going on. And they're sticking him with needles and all kinds of stuff. But you know he needs that so that he's better. 
And so we can see it in our finite lives in which ways that we will subject different things to hard issues, uh, painful things for the sake of getting better. Isn't it possible that an infinite God that sees all things, that holds all things together, maybe could use our suffering in ways that we can't see? But yet Job says it would have been better off if I was just dead. No good could come from this. And so that's the way Job sees it in chapter 3. Now, he goes up and down and all over the place throughout the book, but that's one snapshot. What about Job's friends? If you'll flip over to me with uh, chapter 8. Job goes back and forth with his friends a lot as you're you're reading through the, the, the whole of the book. But this gives us a pretty good snapshot of what they're saying in chapter 8. And so look at what it says. The reply comes from from Job's friend, his friend Bildad. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things? In the words of your mouth, be a great win. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he's delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And so what his friend says and comes to Job and says to him is that you're getting what you deserve. God is punishing you for the sin in your life. So repent, repent right now and it will restore everything and everything will be good. And so their friends, well-meaning as they are, are missing a big part of what Scripture teaches us. It's it's amazing how God works. We're in Sunday school this morning, and Ted's teaching us about evangelism, and he just talked about his own suffering and how God works and all these things, and all the advice he got was this. Just repent, pray harder, work good, and God will work it all out. The exact same thing Job's friends are saying. It's very popular today. It's called the health and wealth gospel. If you just get Jesus and you apply them to your life, and you just have enough faith, everything will be great. The problem is that's not what the Bible says. It's man's wisdom putting it over God's wisdom. Now, there's an infinite joy that comes with knowing God through Christ. Absolutely. It sustains you in all circumstances and all things. But never is there this picture that it's a one-for-one, that you get what you deserve right when it happens. If it were... Thankfully, that's not the case, because if it were every single one of us, we wouldn't be here. We would have been wiped out a long, long time ago. But even within that, and that's what I said at the beginning, when we start to look at suffering within Scripture, it's very multidimensional. There's different parts and there's different issues and there's different things going on. We like to make it into this mold that you suffer for what you did and it's perfectly proportionate. It's not. I'm sorry, it's just not. You look at the world and you see it all over. People who are evil, people who are backhanded, people who are greedy, prosper. They make lots of money and they do all kinds of things. And people that you see that are seeking God, like you have this picture of Job here, that are following hard after him, that are seeking to lead their family in the right way and do all these things, they have all these things befall them. And so it's not a one-for-one, that simple way of seeing it. It's just not. I can prove it to you from Scripture. Not just Job, but there was one guy ever who was perfect. One. One who loved God completely and totally, that kept all of God's commandments, who loved people as he loved himself perfectly, and what happened? 
He was crucified. He was beaten and tortured and spit on and hung on a cross. And so when we start to simplify it into this, it's one for one, you get out what you put in, that kind of picture. The Bible doesn't teach that. And so Job's friends, well-meaning as they are, they come and they try to force it into one little simple thing. Here's the problem, Job. It's like, no, that's really not it. And Job actually says that to him. He says, no, there's no grievous sin in my life. I'm seeking to follow God. He even says, I'm a sinner and I know I've made mistakes, but there's not something I'm hiding. But yet I'm suffering. And so you struggle with this picture as you read through the book of Job. And his friends, their advice is it's just one for one and they miss it. That's not the case. But yet here's the hard part as you read through it and you begin to look at it. God's not paying them back for some grievous sin. We know that because it tells us that right at the beginning. And so they're wrong. But yet here he is suffering. He's suffering even though he seems to be a really good guy. Even though he's seeking God in all these ways. And you go, why? Why is it like that? Here's Job's self-righteous friends. They seem to be doing pretty good and they're looking down on him. And here he is. And you go, that just doesn't seem right. And we struggle with that. And so you get to that point at the end of chapter 37 as all the friends have spoken. And you still go, I don't know. I don't get it. But thankfully the book doesn't end there. Because in chapter 38, God speaks. So we see how Job sees it. And we see how his friends see it. But then we see how God sees it. And so you get to chapter 38 and God begins to speak. And he, and he starts with a bunch of questions. He says to Job, and then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. Verse 3 says, dress for action like a man, and I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Starts with a big one, right? Where were you when I created everything? And then he starts to go through and he says, when I have the storehouses of the rain and I put the planets into motion and I give everything breath and life, where were you, Job? And he starts to ask these questions and he goes through this whole list of this incredible picture. And as he goes through this incredible picture, you get a clear picture of God's eternal power that he is the creator and sustainer of all things. Before you ever existed, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Right after it says, where were you when the heavenly realm sang for joy at what I was doing? Who's going to answer that? Right? And he just goes and then he says this in chapter 42. Look there with me. 42 verse 2. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job goes, I'm going to stop talking now. It's probably a pretty smart thing to say, given what's going on. And then the Lord answered Job and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you ever put me in the wrong Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? And he goes on to say several other things along those lines. And he just lays out this picture for Job. And so what is God's answer in the book of Job? And remember, this is not the fullness of what the Bible teaches, but it's a big piece as we begin to look at this. God says 
that if you have a God big enough to be angry at, you have a God big enough to trust that maybe, just maybe, He's working in ways that you cannot quite see yet. Maybe God's at work to do something that your mind can't fathom. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Whoa. And I say that's part of the equation. It's part of what God answers. Because I'll be honest, you hear that and that can seem really harsh. Does it not? God says, I'm the creator, maker, sustainer. Where were you? And it silences us all. But it can be a difficult thing to hear when you see that. I'm big enough that you can trust me. If I'm big enough to be angry at, I'm big enough that I can be working in ways that maybe you don't see. You go, oh, it's true. It's absolutely true, but it can still be very difficult when we're hit with that. When we see that picture. And so the book ends that way. Job doesn't get more than that. He sees God's majesty and His sovereignty and He shows them this picture and then it ends. He doesn't tell Job what he was doing. He doesn't say, Job, let me show you how all your suffering is going to lead to an eventual glory. Let me explain that to you now. He doesn't say that. He just kind of leaves them there. I'm this big, trust me. And you go, whoa, it's a tough deal. But that's part of the picture. If you have a God big enough to be angry at, you have a God big enough to trust that He's working in ways you can't see. And so you get to this end. And what you get with Job is he seems to suffer in a lot of ways for we don't understand why. Job's a picture of what seems to be unjust suffering. He seems to be doing everything right and seeking God and following after Him. And yet there's all this stuff. And so that's, where Job, that's what Job gets. That's the end of the book of Job. And although that's all he gets, we read it earlier, Job looks at all of it and he says, I've uttered things that I didn't understand. He says, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. He says, I don't understand all of it, but I can't. It's too big. And so you end with that. But the good news as we end this week and as we move on in the series, that's where we're stopping today. That's part of it. We have a God big enough to trust. But the good news is, is Job only sees that picture. Job sees part of his, what seems to be unjust suffering. But we have the whole picture. We see the fullness. What we know is that Job is just a shadow pointing forward to the ultimate Job. The ultimate Job that would come and suffer unjustly. That Jesus would come and walk among us and He'd do everything perfectly. And He'd get to the night before He'd be crucified for something He didn't do. And He'd fall on His face before God and He'd say, God, if there's any other way for this to happen, this would be the time. Right? If there's a plan B I don't know about, let's, let's do it. And He gets no answer. And what does He say? Not my will, but Your will be done. What does Jesus say? I can trust Him. Even in this, even right now. And so He walks headlong 
into suffering, into evil, the one that never deserved any of it, the one perfect one, and He takes it for us, and He bears the brunt of God's wrath, and He does away with sin and evil on our behalf. And so we have more than just what Job has. Although what Job teaches us is a big part of it. But fortunately, God is so gracious that He's revealed to us more than just that. And so each week we're going to look at different parts that He reveals to us in different parts of Scripture. And hopefully as we put all those together, we have a multi-dimensional picture of what it looks like and how God's working. So let's pray. God, we thank You for the book of Job. I thank You for Your sovereignty and Your majesty. I thank You that we don't just have the book of Job. That You've given us much more than that. That even though sometimes we still, even seeing things through the cross and what Christ has done, there's still times when we don't understand. And we don't see how things are working and and where you're working and how that works. But I thank you that we can trust you. That we can trust you in the midst of it. That we have a God big enough to turn our suffering for good that will redeem these things. And for that, we thank you and we praise you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.